Welcome to Useful Outsiders, a monthly podcast series brought to you by the Council for International Development. Welcome back and thanks for joining us for episode two. We're honoured to bring together three women with vast experience and insight for a timely and important discussion about some of the barriers to COVID vaccinations. They bring perspectives from public health, INGOs and communities in Papua New Guinea, Solomon Islands, Kiribati and New Zealand. Sally Angelson hosts the discussion. Sally has worked as a teacher, an aid worker, an advocate and an overseer of programmes supporting some of the most vulnerable young people in the world. She is now Child Fund New Zealand's Senior Technical Advisor for Youth with a focus on the Solomon Islands in Papua New Guinea. Sally is joined by Eunice Watene. Eunice is based in Papua New Guinea and is the Interim Regional Director for Oxfam in the Pacific. Eunice has many years working in the not-for-profit sector and is a proven leader among her peers. And finally, Jess Berenson-Shaw, who's a public narrative researcher and advisor with a background in public health. She has worked in roles across government and the not-for-profit sector and is now the co-director of The Workshop. Jess recently wrote an article for RNZ on how to talk and not talk about COVID vaccines to people with doubts. She also wrote the book, A Matter of Fact, Talking Truth in a Post-Truth World. You can find all the links in the episode notes. Anyway, let's get on with the episode. We hope you enjoy it. So maybe we could kick off this conversation just looking at some of the issues around the distribution of the COVID-19 vaccine, um, some of the issues that are really jumping out around equity, um, who is getting the vaccine, who isn't getting the vaccine. I would really like to just share a little bit from our partners in um, Kiribati on this issue, just to kick off the conversation. What, What I'm hearing from them is that there have been sort of ebbs and flows of the vaccine coming in, and then there have been different vaccines coming in. So this really causes some confusion. Also access issues, but just considering like which vaccine is best, which one isn't, and who gets which vaccine. So yeah, the partners in, in Tarawa were saying that they first got their vaccines around May 2021, um, and they got a whole bunch in through COVAX and through Gavi, um, and they were m- mainly AstraZeneca. And people were really keen to get the first one. You know, they'd seen what was happening around the world, and they were, you know, keen to get that first one. And then they were sort of safe, and there was some messaging that was going on, but it didn't have that sense of urgency because COVID hadn't yet hit. Then another vaccine came in, it was Cinefarm, and so people were talking about, you know, is this um, not as effective or not? Um, And then um, when Omicron did come, um, people were sort of again putting their hand up. But with all of these ebbs and flows, there were some some challenges in who gets it, and especially um, the distribution of those vaccines out to the outer islands. So I'd be really interested to hear from, from you, Eunice, how the feeling around that was in PNG and what were you experiencing there? Yeah, thank you, Sally. So for PNG, um, we had received our first lots of vaccination last year and it was AstraZeneca. The, the challenge with the vaccine was that there were a lot of misinformation shared uh, amongst the media. We 
found a lot of people um, that had access to media sharing um, a lot of information um, and then conspiracy around the vaccine. And so although we had um, vaccines made available, it was difficult to get people to access um, the vaccine and, and to kind of help them to to understand, you know, the importance of um, vaccine. One of the thing is that uh, the logistical challenges uh, to have the vaccine uh, distributed to the ro- most most part of uh, the countries. Uh, we found that vaccines were made available at the clinical centers in, in the urban centers um, and in the cities. Uh, so for people to, travel into those centers to get vaccinated has been a challenge. And so these had not helped with the uh, people's accessibility to um, getting vaccination. Yeah, and I think that area of mistrust is um, misinformation is something that we're going to go more deeply into because I think it's it's definitely one of the the bigger barriers around there. Just to um, just one more thing on the on the distribution, I think it is fair to say that New Zealand has done a really good job in sharing of vaccines, um, and there is certainly a lot more that needs to be done just in terms of removing patents and getting those vaccines through to um, the most vulnerable communities. And yeah, I think that you raise a really good point there around, you know, they arrive, but then the distribution also necessitates cold storage and um, some of those um, health systems aren't equipped to to carry some of the vaccines and some of them are close to expiry. So yeah, a, a whole range of challenges there, I guess, in actually getting the vaccines to the countries and then getting them to those who need them most and keeping them in good condition until they can reach some of those hard-to-reach places. It'd be really interesting to hear from you, uh, Jess, around the the misinformation and just some of the, I guess, the sort of the deeper nuances around some of that misinformation from a public health perspective. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting hearing what you're saying, Eunice's, you know, what we what we know um, and has been researched for years actually in vaccination, especially childhood vaccinations, is that, you know, it's all very well having vaccines. It's the getting vaccinated, which keeps people well, and that there are a number of barriers that people experience um, to that and that certainly access to vaccines is one of the biggest ones. And we certainly know for um, people in remote areas um, where health systems aren't set up for it, Um, and the structures aren't set up for it, where there are problems with equity, um, that access is a a very big driver. Um, And just things as simple as um, how do people people get to the vaccine? You know, in New Zealand, we might think about low-income communities where people have multiple jobs with children. Um, How are they able to access a vaccine during work hours? Do they have an employer who um, was going to let them do that? Certainly in the early stages of the vaccination, if they're in remote areas and regional areas, is the vaccine being brought to them? And we have the saying, I guess, in public, in public health, which is you need um, the vaccines everywhere for everyone if you're going to get, get a, a high rate. So I think we should never forget, I think, and it's, I think it's a good reminder, Eunice, that access is, is fundamental to this you know, issue and, and fair and equitable access is, is fundamental. Um, 
what we've seen with COVID, um, obviously, is that people's um, understanding of vaccination and and then um, their levels of trust um, with both the people who have created the vaccinations and, and those people who distribute them as a, as a big driver, um, on top of which we are people getting exposed to information for the first time about vaccination is also a big driver. And, and I, I'm interested actually, you know, this is how much you feel that social media plays a part versus um, say on the ground, um, false information, you know, just conversations between people in your experience. Yeah, I think sharing of information is really critical and social media plays a very vital role now looking at, you know, a number of, a lot of youth has access to social media platforms um, and they tend to use um, social media a lot with um, getting updates on information and they are the ones that kind of share that information, especially if you're looking at the people that are located in the most remotest part of PNG. It's usually, um, you tend to find a lot of you having access to that kind of information and tends to share that information amongst the peers as well as, you know, in, in the family or in a community group. And that influences the decisions of people, um, whether they want to get vaccinated or not. And also looking at making sure that our health systems, people and our health workers in, in particular, uh, are prepped with the right kind of information uh, to go out there and, and share because the challenge that we are facing as well is when, when they hear from the health workers that there is some sort of hesitancy uh, towards the vaccination, then these kind of builds on the hesitancy from the community as well. And that's what um, we've been hearing a lot as well, that, you know, if this nurse doesn't want to get vaccinated, then why should I get vaccinated? So that's the kind of information uh, that we're getting. But I think using social media to send messages, positive messages around vaccination, clarity on the importance of the vaccine, I think that would really help encouraging people to more people to get vaccinated. Yeah, what you know, what you're picking up on me, and this is a couple of things that we notice um, as researchers across communities, which is that um, hasn't social media done an amazing job of getting information to people in ways that we haven't managed to get health information to people for decades because we haven't tried hard enough, and that for communities themselves to have access to good information as one of the big drivers and one of the biggest interventions and you know it's there is a real empowerment issue here which is that it's really important that information isn't given in pre-packaged forms to communities but communities themselves have access to the good information and actually can develop it in ways um, that work for their own communities and we see that a lot is that we're community driven vaccination programs and information um, where they're given the right funds and where they're enabled with the right information they're a lot more powerful for for improving vaccination uptake and and that's for one of those reasons which you just talked about which was that um, this thing called social proof is really important in vaccination when we see other people who we trust being vaccinated we are much more likely to get vaccinated ourselves and and again some of that is driven by 
understanding that there's a high lack of trust in, for example, pharmaceutical companies who have behaved appallingly, um, you know, especially in low-income countries where there's been, you know, a number of incidences in the past of incredibly unethical behaviour. There might be low trust because of issues, for example, around colonisation. There might be low trust um, because of people's direct experience with government. And so it's really important that people that, that the community themselves trust are seen to be vaccinated and seen to be sharing information about vaccination as, as opposed to it coming in from outsiders because that is the source we see um, of, of higher vaccination rates and, and the ability to contain some of that false information that might get a head start. Yeah, and I think that issue of um, trust of the structures is a really interesting one. And we've seen that in so many cases in the structural inequities that already exist um, are sort of being exacerbated by COVID. And then the response to them is based on people's foundation of mistrust anyway. Um, and I think of an example, um, you know, our, our partners on the ground in the Solomons were talking about how it was only at the end of last year that there were riots in Honiara. Um, and that was mainly driven um, about politics, uh, uh, active choice from the government to, to side with China over Taiwan. And so there was a sort of platform of mistrust anyway, around government decisions that weren't being democratically done. And then also Cinefarm coming from China raised other questions around that. And even some of them turned into sort of conspiracy theories. People were saying, you know, that the vaccine might alter their DNA. It's a, you know, it's a government controlled birth control um, that, you know, it might be the mark of the beast. Christians shouldn't take it. We should live by prayers. And so I think that there are so many layers to the, um, the, the mistrusts that exist anyway. And then those that come out through something like, you know, actually even having COVID and the stigma around having COVID, being vaccinated against it. And that, again, that control, the government, that sort of, that sense that it's been controlled by the government. And, uh, you know, we see that in New Zealand as well. Yeah, I mean, you know, so I'd be interested in your view on it, but we in the community of people working on false information, we talk about false information being a political issue we talk about false information being an issue of inequality and we talk about uh, false information you know being something which has to be addressed not simply through better information but through actually addressing a lot of those drivers of inequity that exist um and if we if we can't see it for you know for for those drivers then we we're really going to struggle to get on top of it and I was just thinking, you know, going back to some of our, you know, our old systems or some of those systems that have been in place for a long time, thinking about, you know, health promotion in terms of what we say about what health promotion action means. And, and at the heart of that, you know, how do we strengthen communities themselves? How do we build up their ability to advocate for themselves? How, you know, what are we doing um, to overcome some of those inequities, ensure that everybody gets what they need. So these are some of the kind of more, you know, really standard things that we need to do when we're thinking about misinformation. It's not, this is not a new thing and it's not, you know, we don't need to come up with in lots of ways more clever and um, solutions to false information if we haven't 
dealt with some of those fundamental issues around why mistrust has happened. And, and for lots of people in lots of communities, putting aside where some of these conspiracy theories come from, the, for example, the alt-right, but why they might be picked up by some of these communities is, is for all of those reasons that we know for those of us working in development, you know, exist. Yeah. And, and looking back at how um, vaccination and I think child vaccination has worked in, in case of PNG, was we have usually mobile clinics that go out into the community uh, to do awareness um, and, and to let the community know that they will be coming, you know, at a particular point in time to start rolling out vaccination. Um, and this has really helped, you know, uh, the, the government to reach the most remotest part of PNG uh, to roll out vaccination. Uh, but the process also allows for interaction with um, the community based health workers to clarify any concerns or questions and provide additional information um, at the community level. Uh, but I tend to find that um, this has not been happening for most parts of rolling out of um, COVID vaccination. And I think part of it was initially when we were the first lots of vaccine came into the country, uh, we were experiencing lockdowns as well. And that kind of creates the barrier for one for people to travel from one district to another to access um, vaccines. But then when the lockdown was lifted and, and again, that's tied to, you know, a lot of conspiracy around um, the vaccines, I see that there was like a need for the community or the health workers to go into the community to provide more information and um, encourage the community to to get vaccinated and also looking at um, because we are most of the Pacific people we live in a community and work through um, a kind of a trust that built within the community and there are people that they look up to uh you know community leaders and mostly church leaders so to to look at how do we then coordinate with community leaders and 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 church leaders to kind of work with the community to build trust and um share information and i i think that was one of the the gaps um that has been recognized and and really need to be addressed yeah it's so interesting because i mean the that's exactly the same gap that, for example, Māori and Pacifica communities in New Zealand identified really early on. And, a, you know, one of those frustrations, I think, for somebody like myself is that we've identified this is the way to do vaccination and childhood vaccination, you know, with, that's been talked about by communities for years. You know, you have to have community leaders who understand the information and can drive these um, programs ourselves we're talking to our own people and we can talk about why this matters to us and yet what we saw was um, initially anyway especially in New Zealand and I'm, I'm not sure what it was like in other places was a very top-down approach to the vaccination communication and rollout which works very well for people like me who are you know white middle-class people um, that entire system is built um, around how we trust and how we form trust and how we form beliefs. Um, and we know that what that means is that vaccinations will be taken up first by people like myself, you know, the classic of inverse care law, the people who need them 
least get them first. I think there, there was some work here around ensuring that um, older people who were most at risk at the time um, did get their vaccinations first, but very little nuance within communities, whether that was the disabled community or um, Māori, Pacifica, low-income communities. And um, I think you're right that COVID itself and the lockdowns created some problems, but I think it also reflects the lack of investment we've generally had in building relationships um, between, say, central government or central providers and communities and enabling them um, to do their own work in their own way. Like the the existing gaps and I guess the the health infrastructure, if you want to call it that, were exacerbated and shown in stark relief around the vaccination programs as well. So is there a um, thought that this has perhaps uncovered an opportunity for improvement? And I think about, you know, some of the, the health systems you were talking about in PNG, um, Eunice, and I know from, from other members in, in the Pacific um, in New Zealand as well, you know, like has this has this uncovered a an opportunity for us to improve some of that coordinated messaging and how um, we are going through those community-led structures and going to the right people for the right purposes around um, public health messaging? Yeah, I, I think it, it's really important to um, for us to work closely with the provincial health authority who has uh, linked to the district centres um, so that we work in a coordinated way to provide information as well as ensuring, you know, the rollout of vaccines happens smoothly. Um, it, we have a lot of challenges, you know, log logistical challenges to accessing those community and uh, noting that, um, you know, our infrastructure um, is in, in such um, a, a condition that really needs support from the government uh, to, to help improve and set up in such a way that it has the, the ability to support that kind of um, work that we would like to do. And, and so working together to identify, you know, who uh, is working on rolling out vaccines like all the INGO as well as other partner organizations, um, what roles do they play to support the um, the government in, in terms of sharing of information and um, rolling out of vaccines. I think that would be um, really helpful to address some of the, the gaps that we have. But of course, when we talk infrastructure, um, that is something, you know, that we would like to see the government uh, support more on, on that. Absolutely. And I guess the, you know, the NGO has that ability to really understand what the realities are on the ground, you know, for the children, for the families, for the, the health systems very locally that can feed up to the government so they can really understand what it looks like on the ground when they're making these um, decisions for the population um, and perhaps feeding that back down as well in a, in a coordinated way. Um, yeah, and I know just again from um, the Solomons, just in terms of that coordination, I, f I feel like there was, there has been so many different messages coming from so many different mediums. So going back to social media has a great potential and, um, you know, how that is 
coordinated or filtered or whatever whatever the right way to do that and we're now kind of in the point of of counter information so there is so much of that misinformation and stories that have already gone out there so I know one thing that our partners are really trying to consider in the best way is counter information so so it's out there what do we do now to to make it better it's super interesting that isn't it um, I'd be interested to hear about what that looks like. Yeah, and I think we, we've we been working together and um, the the NGO forum in PNJ uh, is also working to, to support with counter um, information. Uh, we are using Facebook in particular uh, to, we have a group of people that go in and then try to provide a lot of feedback to some of the mis-messaging uh, as well as try to boost messaging around COVID from trusted sources um, and, and answer any questions, you know, that have been um, posted in the social media, but it, it has its own challenges. Um, sometimes, you know, you have to have uh, try to join as many groups as you can um, within the social media network to post as much information as you can. Sometimes you, you don't get um, the approval from the admin to post this kind of messages. So it's, it's trying to get them on board with the uh, the idea and 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 to to help them understand the 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 key uh, messaging behind what we are trying to do and um, so that they could help as well to promoting those messages in their um, platform as well. As you're speaking, you know, so I'm thinking there's there's a real injustice and imbalance to this, right? That which is that you know so much hard work by so many people has to go into just trying to get back to a baseline level and and it feels like it, at times it just feels like a such an inequity right to to have to spend all of this time and energy and you know how much are the platforms themselves responsible um you know for this and how much responsibility as big multinational corporations should they be taking for this you know one of the things we know from our research is that once misinformation and false information is embedded, it's very, very hard to move people out of that space. Like the energy and the effort required to shift somebody who believes false information, you know, is a hundredfold what it took to get them there in the first place. And, you know, for us, that's why prevention is always going to be better than cure because a you know that that's a huge ask for already you know stretched thin health providers and NGOs and community members having to to fight we talk about um trying to the squirt gun of truth to the fire hose of misinformation you know that's that's what it feels like and it is like some of the time so from a prevention point of view um we're really interested in things like um something called inoculation theory which ironically they used from the vaccine area which is how can we get in front of misinformation and let people know that they're going to be exposed to false information and what the kinds of strategies that people who spread false information look like and that's especially useful um, in working with children we've seen is that we can help them identify especially untrustworthy sources of health information, the types of strategies that um, people spreading false information might use and how they might um, approach it differently. And there are 
some really interesting programs that have been used um, in Ghana, for example, that have tested really well where children were being exposed to a lot of false health information. And I'd be really interested in, for example, um, what the social media companies are doing to um, help support and invest those types of programs as opposed to just, say, shutting down false information. I think there's a real role here, um, as you say, for governments, for people in government, but also in these companies who are, um, you know, have a high degree of responsibility um, in allowing this false information out there. So I'd like to see them thinking about investing in some of these more widespread prevention programs. Yeah, absolutely. I think that would really help to to ensure that um, we, and I think having a, a a body that kind of monitors and 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 um, ensure that the right information out there uh, is published. I think that's important. Um, and um, looking at, I, I know the the National Department of Health is is working with all the other INGOs and and partners to provide uh, that kind of support. Uh, but having um, uh, a body set up to to monitor and and to control um, as much information sharing within um, the social media platform will be really helpful uh, to to um, stop misinformation as much as we uh, we can uh, to go out to the general public. Minister, can I ask how like how is the information constructed and framed? Do you the the kind of good information that you provide, is it often fact-led or do you tend to um, create stories and accessible narratives for people around it? Usually uh, it's based on fact-led, um, especially uh, for the information that we would like to share to encourage people to get vaccination out in, in the Pacific and, and speaking from um, PNG, people will listen to someone who has gone through the experience and and felt what it's like uh you know to be having covid and 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 the impact that it has on on someone and rather than for someone to just talk about something um and uh, not have any evidence to to back that up so i think providing information and and backing up with a lot of um evidence that that would really help. I think a lot of misinformation was around information that doesn't have real backup, you know, and, and evidence. And, and that's something uh, that we would like to um, prevent. But maybe a way forward would be, you know, to get as much as possible, as many people uh, to, to share their information on what impact COVID has. Um, in, in their families and also for people who are being vaccinated but were able to get um, COVID, you know, what was the experience like so that uh, this could give some sense of comfort to people and, and, and in a way encourage people to get vaccinated. Um, it, it's quite tricky um, and, and, and quite challenging as well. And like you said, I, I agree people, it's really hard to get them out from um, something they strongly believe. I have spent some time in my last 10 days of having COVID being very thankful for being vaccinated. I have spent, you know, it's, it's, it hasn't been 
terrible, but it hasn't been great. And I have found myself thinking, goodness me, I'm so thankful for vaccinations and for being vaccinated, which is a really, you know, that's a great story, I think, for people to tell. And, you know, one of the challenges I think that we have in this space around the science is that the science is always changing and people who spread false information or misinformation have a much simpler story to tell, you know, and we have a complex story to tell sometimes where, you know, first of all, you just needed one vaccination or now you need two vaccinations. Well, now actually you need three vaccinations. And, you know, that's a, it can be a harder story to tell the complexity of science for people. And I think, and um, what we see is that as much as we can hear these stories from trusted um, individuals, one of the other things we found in our research, which you might find interesting, is that people really needed to hear that people within the health system, people who had developed the vaccinations and people who had developed ping the vaccinations and monitoring them that they cared for people. It was a really important part of the storytelling that along with the facts people could connect with the people who were part of the system they could see those people and that that they could hear that all of this was based around care and one of the things we see in false information and why people latch on to it so quickly is often those people who spread false information are very good at connecting with people on a human level, you know, within whether that's in a Facebook group or within a community, if you hear that piece of information from somebody you trust is that there's a connection there and a way to connect with somebody. And in a way, fighting false information requires that we find ways to connect with people as well. In the same way, we find ways to connect with them and their values and we find ways to let them know that we care for them. And we find, you know, these, these connecting places and stories. And my experience is for a lot of communities who, are especially collective communities, those stories are inherent uh, anyway. And, and sometimes in a desire to get the facts about vaccination out, um, they might leave aside those traditional stories and ways of connecting with people when actually those are the, there's the superpower that exists already in the community that together with the facts can be used to really connect with people. That's, that's so interesting. I'm just thinking about how we started this conversation around, um, you know, vaccine equity and I guess on a global scale, recognizing that none of us are safe until all of us are safe um, and looking at the, you know, the re removing of patents and this kind of thing. It's not a pharmaceutical profit making pandemic that we're in. Well, it is, but it shouldn't be. And so it's so much more complex than just having a vaccine. There are so many layers to this, which is uncovering um, a multitude of things. With all of this that we've talked about, from an NGO perspective, what do you think we can do? Eunice, how do you think NGOs can be most useful? Yeah, thanks, Sally. I think NGOs, um, you know, are working on the ground in the most remotest part of, of the country, uh, you know, across the Pacific. And we have access to information. We understand the context in which, you know, the community are dealing with the COVID situation on the ground. So working closely with the government to provide the much needed information uh, in terms of infrastructure, in terms of accessibility um, uh, with the government uh, and, and, 
I think that would help to ensure, you know, support is provided where needed, but also what we can do in terms of partnering in in working together to addressing, uh, you know, the the hesitancy in in COVID is looking at working closely with the Department of of Health and and um, other NGOs, wealth organization providing key messaging um, using the different platforms that we have, but also looking at what actually works within the community and how do we amplify those ways of, of communication um, within a community um, uh, to, to share um, information on COVID. So I, I think that would be something we could contribute and, and see other NGO contribute to supporting the government um, to address those issues. Yeah, I think I think the same for the whole NGO sector. Huh? The the ability to be sort of between so many different layers is an opportunity to really um, make a difference. Um, I'd be really interested to hear from a a messaging side, um, Jess, or you know, like from that sort of from that human side, um, as well as sort of from a structural side. What can we do about it? I often think about what can we do structurally in terms of information and I think I often talk about how do we build a healthy information environment and as much as that's a determinant of health as you know a good hospital system or a good health system so there's a lot that we can do to help construct a healthy information environment and look that suffers as much from all of the issues of equity um, that other aspects of health do so I I think, you know, we need to keep working on what are the things that will help us construct a healthy information environment across the globe. And as you say, you know, we all need a healthy information environment for all of us to thrive. You know, we live in a global community and yes, we live in little communities, but we also live in a global community and the pandemic has shown us this and, and that false information does not respect borders and it does not respect um, income levels and, it you know, it, it it, we have to have a healthy information environment everywhere. Part of that is a commitment to understanding what drives um, people to believe false information. Um, we need more tools that are accessible to people on the ground to develop good messaging. You know, we um, we did a lot of research um, off our own back during this period, and um, there was some understanding of how to create um, good messaging, but there needs a lot more tools to be given to um, to communities themselves so that they can develop good information um, themselves and drive it themselves. Like that is something that is very practical that could be do- be done um, as well. And and like I said, I think some of thinking about some of the structures and systems, what are social media companies doing? What are they investing in? How can governments partner with them? What are governments doing in order to enable um, better information environments at the local level as well? Yeah. And I mean, just in terms of messaging, I think there's a lot of amazing existing strong and powerful frames and messages that exist within communities themselves that need amplifying you know this message of love and care for each other is something that we're seeing works across communities and and for each community to find a story to tell about that that works um, for their own needs and to have the I guess the confidence to continue to tell some of those stories uh, and those those are particularly effective and and some knowledge about what some of the more unhelpful stories might be um, and some of the more unhelpful frames as well. I think it's it's a really interesting um, turning point. You know, the Solomons, for example, was 
uh, COVID free until not long ago. And so actually having COVID come into the country has really changed people's perspective and reality of what it is and that it's, it is sort of knocking on the door. It's not just something that happens out there. But I guess what they're really thinking is that there has to be coordination. These different messages don't help anybody. And so um, working together is the best way. The sort of the coordination with government, yeah, the coordination of messaging, that sort of seems to be the key. And like you said, Jess, like using those already already existing structures of how information is shared locally and culturally. And, you know, as you were saying, Facebook is a great way. I think, you know, like really having that knowledge of how people receive information best and working through those channels rather than trying to have an, an extra layer to that. Um, thank you so much to Eunice and Jess for your time today. Um, it's been a really useful and interesting discussion. It was, it was lovely to talk to you and it was really interesting to hear from you as well, Eunice. It's always great to hear from people who are actually doing the hard work on the ground. So, yeah. Yeah, so thanks yeah. for inviting me on. Thank you so much for having me as well. So this conversation identified that while there has been some barriers in distribution, one of the key issues is hesitancy and false information. And it's certainly a big challenge. As Jess put it, a squirt gun of truth against the fire hose of misinformation. But I think this conversation gave us some really helpful lessons and ideas to take forward. So a big thank you to Sally, Jess and Eunice for taking time out of their busy schedules to talk with us today. And we'd also like to thank Fisher and Paykel Healthcare who have supported this episode. Fisher and Paykel Healthcare, headquartered in New Zealand, over the past 50 years has become a world-leading medical device company specialising in helping people breed. During the COVID pandemic, they worked closely with organisations such as UNICEF, the World Health Organisation, governments and hospitals around the world, including our neighbours in the Pacific, with their devices helping to treat millions of patients requiring respiratory support. Thank you for listening to Useful Outsiders. Please subscribe, share, rate and review and help us to spread the word. We'd love to hear from you, so if you have any feedback or ideas for future episodes, please get in touch. You can find our email in the episode notes. We hope you'll join us for the next episode.